0: everyone, it's Norma from the Accounting Twins podcast. If you're a regular here, then you know how much Becky and I talk about the 150 hour rule that has been set in place by NASBA. If you want to take the CPA exams, if you want to be a CPA, yeah, you know it. You know our opinions. Well, for today's bonus episode, you won't be hearing Becky and I talk. I know. I'm so sorry. You can't hear my voice. Tears. But instead, you will be listening to Blake Oliver and David Leary from the Cloud Accounting Podcast interview the NASBA president and CEO, Ken Bishop, about the 150 hour rule. We hope you like this little bonus episode and learn a lot from them. Thanks.
1: Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. This is a special interview with Ken Bishop, the president and CEO of NASBA, the National Association of State Boards of Accountancy. Welcome to the program, Ken. Uh, Blake, I'm happy to be here, thank you. We have been talking a lot on the program about the 150 hour rule, eager to talk to you about the talent shortage. Maybe we should start with that that vote that NASBA's board took on what Minnesota is doing with the 150 hour rule. So Minnesota's got legislation a bill to create an alternative pathway that would allow future CPAs to earn 120 hours, the regular four-year college degree, and then two years of work experience instead of going and getting that extra 30 hours. And NASBA voted unanimously to oppose that. Can you give us some context on that? Because what we're hearing from the community, folks in the state boards and the societies, is that like, they are not unanimous. There's a lot of opposition to the 150-hour rule, can you explain the difference
0: here? Sure. Well, first of all, we didn't have uh, the vote that the NASA board had uh, was not directly related to the Minnesota legislation, so we didn't vote against Minnesota's bill. Uh, essentially, uh, the requirements, you know, for licensure and certification aren't determined by NAS, but they're determined by state legislature, let's legislator, say state legislators and uh, Ultimately, you know, they're enforced or implemented by the state boards of accountancy. NASBA's role as the board of directors is they review and essentially approve language for exposure, uh, language that comes out of the Uniform Accountancy Act, which is a joint committee between NASBA and AICPA. So it was that form, the Uniform Accountancy Act and both the NASBA and AICPA board, That had originally endorsed moving to 150, gosh, many years ago, you know, back in the late 70s and 90s or 80s is when that bill took place. So essentially the vote was to continue to support the 150 uh, uh, because of the importance of substantial equivalency and mobility across the United States. And also believing it's, it's, you know, the right right benchmark for education to be a CPA uh, this day and time.
2: What drove this vote? Like, were there some people that said, hey, we should reconsider this? Should we change it? Like, what?
0: You know, I, it probably has much to do with me as anything and our chair, Rick Ricey. Uh, you know, we have, like every board, we have rollover and turnover. And so this year we have quite a few new members. And so uh, consistently through the years, I mean, I've been the CEO now for like 12 years, and it's, there's always been very consistent support for the 120, but I like to know the temperature of the board you know new new people on the board uh whether there's a change in, in mindset or a lessening lessening of support for it. so really it was more of determining is our board still solidly behind you know the current language of the uniform accountancy act and, and it was
1: there have been numbers reported in the wall street journal accounting today about the accounting talent shortage, 17% of U.S. auditors and accountants quit the profession in the last few years. There is a shortage of accounting talent in small firms, in large firms, everywhere, in corporations. Uh, There's strong continued demand for accountants and we can't get enough of them. Meanwhile, accounting program enrollments are down in college. Uh, Fewer people are taking the CPA exam every year. Why keep this 150-hour rule when there's no evidence that it increases CPA quality. I've never seen any evidence that anyone's better off because of the fifth year rule. In fact, there's studies that show the opposite, that it simply reduces the supply of accountants. I mean, this seems like something easy that we could change right away to solve this or to help solve this talent crisis we've got.
0: Well, sure, and, and, and let me just start off by saying I, I disagree with several of the premises that you, that you just said. First of all, I would agree with you, uh, this has been around now for multiple decades and there are some, you know, studies that like what we look at, we know that people, the pass rates gone up for example, since all states adopted the 150, uh, pretty significantly. So there's, you know, that's there. But I also want to say on the front end, we absolutely agree with you. There is a huge problem of this declining number of people here in the profession. And it's happening at the same time that baby boomers are retiring uh people are leaving the profession the great resignation that happened during covid also impacted the accounting staffs when couples decided one couple one half the couple would stay home lots of reasons so we know it's a big problem and uh you know and we've been working on it. we've been trying to come up with strategies of things that we can do short term mid term and long term to try to get more people in the profession but but on our side we've been trying to do that without disrupting substantial equivalency and mobility, which really took decades to achieve, and is very high value to CPAs and CPA firms. But more importantly, it's high value to clients. You know, uh, for example, I was I was in Missouri uh, when I started my career. I live in Nashville, Tennessee now, but my CPA in Missouri still does my work, and it's a trusted CPA I've used for years. And mobility allows that to happen. So. So it's, it's a value proposition to consumers and professionals that we're trying we're trying to maintain, and the, the counter argument to the evidence is there's absolutely no evidence that says that changing the education requirement to 150 would actually increase the number of people wanting to be CPAs right now when you know the demographics are shrinking. There's less people going to college. Uh, a lot of competition with economists. Uh, MBA programs, lots of other programs. So I'm not saying it's not possible that that's one of the impacts, but I do know of all the surveys I've seen, you know, out there, you know, from, you know, from minority groups, because there used to be an argument, maybe it was a detriment to minorities, the 150 hours, uh, the center for auto quality, the university of, I mean, excuse me, the, the state society of Illinois, there's been quite a few, you know, surveys out there to try to to find out what are the problems with people that are leaving the profession and the cost of of the uh examination the amount of education never even makes the top of the list it's always at the bottom part the top of the list is always salaries work life well, balance but leaving the profession
2: versus entering the profession excuse when me they, leaving the profession versus entering are different and in this young generation entering is the very profession the same way
0: they they interviewed yeah. candidates for the profession, and the candidates are the ones that did not list that as one of the primary or even a, a significant reason of why they're not wanting to enter the profession. In well, fact, was- when I talked to two accounting schools recently about candidates they lose, they said these people didn't leave and go into bachelor's programs. Most of them got MBAs. They went in to get master's degrees in economics. So the type of uh, people uh, like you, Blake. You know, I heard you talk in one of your earlier, blog, you know, uh, discussions with with uh, uh, Jim that you talked about. You know that you had philosophy as it did he. I mean, it, there's a lot of people that were really made more whole. I mean, I, you're a great communicator. Jimmy Corley's a great communicator. And when I listened to your all's blog that day, I'm sitting there thinking, "Gosh, you know, I never really thought about Jimmy Corley, but it might be that philosophy." Uh, education that he got, in addition to the accounting, is what really took him over the top of being, you know, what I know, the great communicator and, and the excellent executive director he's been in Arkansas. So the evidence is sometimes subjective, but, you know, we do see a lot of gains with people who have the education, including you, Blake.
1: It's what you make of it. I sure. just object to the idea of requiring people to go get it when it's a significant cost, right? So I did I did some back of the envelope math, and I calculated that you might spend hundred thousand dollars here in Phoenix if you go get a master's, a Mac, over at ASU. You know, you calculate the thirty thousand dollars in-state tuition, and then you add in the opportunity cost, and then the the room and board and all that, and you're you're talking a hundred k, and that's not a small amount of money for a student. So I just find it hard to believe that the cost isn't something that people consider. Like if I'm a student and I can choose a four-year degree that's going to pay me more than a five-year program that's going to pay me less, what do I choose?
0: I don't disagree with what you just said. I mean, I'm not saying the cost isn't an issue. I'm saying it is nowhere near the top of the rank of the reasons people give. Uh, But what I would else tell you also is those MAC programs, traditionally, when you look at their the output, when you see the people that go into the firms that are selected from the Mac programs are selecting from the Mac programs, uh, they do very well in, in, salaries, you know, as well. So, yeah. but, but I would never argue against the fact that education has gotten extremely expensive, expensive, but more expensive. There's a very much of a concern about student loans by, by students now. So we know that's one of the challenges, but, but it's not, it, we don't see that as the biggest challenge.
1: So, so David and I have discussed this on the show, and it's hard to have a rational conversation about it without more information about these surveys. Unfortunately, AICPA doesn't release the data. Um, I wonder who they're talking to. And, and David has said this very well on the show where, you know, if you're talking to people who are already bought in to the whole path, right, doing the five years, doing the CPA, of course, for them, the cost is not going to be something that they say is a problem because they've already accepted that cost. But my question is, are NASBA and AICPA talking to the people who decided never to become accountants in the first place? Those people are not in that data set. And so if you, if you don't survey them, all the people who are potential accounting students, you're, you're missing out on this. It, to me, it just seems like obvious that, you know, why would I go pay 25% more for a degree when I can do it in less time and, and be making even more money coming out of school?
0: Like well, you can say that compute. if you wanted to be a lawyer. You can say that if you wanted to be a doctor. You can say that if you want to be a clinical social worker, a tenured teacher. I mean, there are an awful lot of jobs out there that pretty much require a master's degree, where we have the 150. Yeah. You know, but uh, but yeah, I mean, people will make a life decision as to what they want to do. That's why I think that the salaries is one of the big components we see now out in social media and in the surveys we've seen is because you know, smart people become CPA. So they are looking at the investment versus the ultimate, you know, outcome that they have, the salary that they're going to get. So obviously it makes an impact yeah. well, know, and we, on the decision. We can't but control- let me go back to your other question. Sure, sure. I can tell you practically, we don't have the ability uh, in, in our data to survey people who did, decided not to go to college to be a CPA because they're not in our mix of people that we communicate with you know but we we do t- talk to the colleges i have met with a you know with a uh, uh, someone from a big college in in south Cal- uh, southern california yesterday and had that discussion and they too are down a significant percentage uh, so so we know in reality there's a shrinking demographic shrinking number of people going to college and therefore less people becoming accountants and that is why we're trying to come up with all the remedies but we also believe there's a real good potential that Lowering the bar of entry to become a CPA may actually be a detriment to people who want to be a professional versus you know walk go into the accounting trade. So, so you you guys you can make your own determination, but uh, you say you can't go out and find the surveys. I'm I'm pretty sure that the Center for is out there. I know the University of or the excuse me the society the State Society of Illinois surveys out there. I think NAB is out there. So there's a lot of surveys out there in public domain that, that is very recent that you can see how students did uh, respond to that.
2: But the there's a test. That's how we determine if somebody is qualified to be a certified public accountant. There's actually an exam.
0: Right. Well, it's a it's three-legged not- school. There's, there's the exam, there's education, and there's experience. And So, right. so there are people who could take the exam and, and just pass the exam without ever going to school or having experience but they wouldn't be qualified or ready to be uh, a CPA. So
1: what we're talking about is adjusting that three-legged stool to allow for more experience in lieu of education. And everyone that I talk to, when I ask them this question, they say, I ask them the question, what do you think is more valuable to a young accountant? A year of experience or an extra year of education? 100%, it's a year of experience.
0: Well, right. and 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 I don't disagree with that. I, I yeah. think that the experience that you get is good, but but let's just look at experience and why why they changed the law forty years ago to the language of one hundred and fifty versus the more uh, extreme experience. When when I first got into the regulation of accounting in the state of Missouri, the requirement was you know two years of experience, two thousand hours per year in a CPA firm, cert- supervised directly by a CPA. That included X amount of hours of a test experience. that was that was the experience requirement. And even in those days, you could you could go to work for one firm and get great experience, and you could go to another firm and have r- relatively no experience that so the work that you were doing was not going to be valuable to your career as a CPA. so so when you when you have a licensing requirement that says we'll accept two years of experience, like the Minnesota bill that you mentioned, you know, uh, one firm, that might be highly valuable. The other that may be making copies or, doing, you know, when I talk to, to people that are earlier in their careers, there's a wide variety of differences of value and intensity of the experience. And the problem with that is, is in regulation and licensing, other states need to rely that there's consistency. And right, that but, is just so, always inconsistent but, and doesn't. But, uh, doesn't, doesn't just, wait, wait, wait. sir, David, education.
1: I got okay. to jump into this. So, like, but there's the same problem in education, right? That that extra 30 hours you get could be from the best master of accountancy program in the world and it might just be awesome. And the other 30 hours could be in basket weaving or it could be in philosophy. It could be anything, right? So, there's it's the same problem. There's no guarantee that, you know, that extra year of education is going to help you at all. And that's what we see in the data. The, the studies that have been done find that there's no difference in quality between CPAs who did the extra 30 and those who didn't. And 75% of the CPAs out there right now did 120 hours. Are we saying that they are like less valuable than those who did 150?
0: No, as I ju- we just discussed, the 120 people that are out there, or that huge percent of the population, had most of them had very intense experience you know, that had included audit directly supervised by a CPA. and that's not 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 the case anymore. it's it's a, it's just experience that's verified. so it could be it could be bookkeeping. It could be mm-hmm. lots of things that would meet the bar that's entirely different than the bar of experience back when those one twenty people became licensed in the past. And again, this isn't new. a lot of people are treating it like this one fifty suddenly disrupted the supply chain of candidates. It's been around like in Florida, they passed it in
2: 1983. It, August 3rd, many of those years, years
0: many of those years, we had a surplus. We had a surplus of people. Uh, accounting programs all over the country raised the bar of entry through ACT scores and entry scores and, and 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 you know score averages to cut down on the size of classroom until just about 2018, something like that, just a little before pre COVID. So all of a sudden, we've had the anomaly of COVID. We've had this disruption of, uh, you know, about student loans. A lot's going on, but there's really no indicator that the 150 is the cause of it. Because of that, before that, we had a surplus of candidates. Oh,
1: no, I, I agree that it's not the cause, uh, but it's certainly one of the barriers to entry that is expensive, you know, costs.
0: But well, you said earlier, that's any profession. The yeah. cost of education, is, if you call it a barrier, it's a requirement of entry. Sure. Right.
1: But it's a it's a barrier that, you know, I would argue that law school has value and that medical school has value, but we have no evidence that the extra 30 hours has value. The, the studies you say have been We done. have
0: no evidence. I yeah. You know, there's lots of evidence. I mean, you know, uh, I sit on the board of Vanderbilt University's MAC program and literally I think like 100 percent of the people get hired by big firms and they talk about the, the level of competence these people have. And other schools have the same University of Illinois and Champaign. I mean, I, I can't, I don't want, I don't want to leave anybody out, but we also know that the, the, like I said, the pass rates on the exam have gone up since we had the 150 hour requirement. There's like right now, there's less people going in the pipeline of, of examination, but there's more people coming out because of the higher pass rate. So yeah, there's a lot of evidence that, that, uh, 150 has improved overall. Uh, the professionalism of, of the of the of the CPA profession, but there's also the outliers that we could all come up with. Of you know, you said underwater basket weaving, and that's that's what anyone who poses the 150s brings up. Yeah. But Nasba sees more so more transcripts than any other entity on the planet for the CPAs, and I can tell you, you rarely see a transcript of a person who's smart enough to become a CPA that doesn't have high value coursework in that 30 hours. And I would argue your philosophy courses that you had, Blake, were high value to be a better, more well, well-rounded and educated CPA. Can now publish does that? It have to be accounting courses. Pub-
2: publish, those, publish that. If you guys have all these trends, publish those those records. That I would, I would help people to see this, right? What people yeah. are using for those 30 hours. Yeah, well, what are they actually, what are their Because we're in... seeing
0: this, we probably should do a better job. Of, and we are, we are, this is a rel- relatively new phenomenon, by the way. This new discussion about suddenly rolling back to 150, or from 150 to 120, is relatively new. It's always been, there's always been a group of people that opposed the 150 from, from the 1970s and 80s till now. Uh, but I can tell you that, you know, we do know there's a, a, a couple of state societies and maybe a, a, some board members, but there's not a single board of accountancy that has told us that they oppose one hundred and fifty want to go to one hundred and twenty and get rid of substantial equivalency uh, or mobility. Certainly, Arkansas, where Jimmy Corley, well, he's resigned now, but where Jimmy Corley uh, uh, was at in Arkansas, the board only agreed to next year have a study to look at it. So they they haven't opined against the one hundred and fifty or going to one hundred and twenty. No state board has, and and one state society has has voted to do that. So if we're not going to roll
1: back 150 to 120 to make it less expensive, to make it less time consuming to become a CPA, you know, what is the solution to this shortage that we have? It doesn't seem like natural causes are going to make more people go to, into accounting. Right. And we've got this succession crisis in firms. They can't find the candidates. They can't find the accountants, CPAs. Uh, You know, if I'm a partner, who's 50 or 60 and I need to pass on my firm to somebody and I can't get that young person in to take over. I mean, that's my retirement. I mean, I, I feel like that's probably why these state boards and these state societies are getting pressure. What's, what's the, what's the, I have heard, you know, ASCP has their eight point plan. I don't know if NASBA has a, a plan or if it's the same thing as the ASCPA one, but like none of those points on that plan, I can can quantify to make like a a significant difference.
0: Sure. Well, significant difference, we need to make a difference. So we need to make a difference soon. Right now, we're looking at short range, mid range, long range solutions that we can attract as many of the best and brightest that we can. You know, we're looking at, you've probably heard of this uh, experience, learn and earn program where people who dropped out to get a job during COVID, you know, or before COVID, it's uh, an opportunity for them to get back in and have low cost thirty hours of additional education. I say thirty hours, whatever they need to close the gap between when they graduate and one hundred and fifty, at a at a, at a reasonable fee, and also be something that's important to that that firm. So that's almost completely developed. We're going to launch it this fall. So We're is discussing that the program?
1: Right now, can I just I want to dig in more into that. So that's sure, the program sure. where you're working at a firm and you're taking college classes online
0: or? It, it's, it's a little deeper than that, and I'm not the subject matter expert. We, I have some great staff that are NASBA's contributors to that and working on that with our volunteers. Mm-hmm. But essentially, it's that you're a firm, and like you just mentioned, these small firms are struggling to find someone you know, that is a CPA to hire them. So you have someone that is working for you that would like to achieve that, but, but the cost of the 30 hours is important. So this is, this is an opportunity to get the 30 hours while you're earning, while you're working at the firm. And it could be online or not, but right now it's designed to, we're believing online at a cost that's no more expensive than a, like a typical two year college or junior college, no more than like $150 an hour. So, so, but the, the third element, which is critically important is the firm can kind of say, this is the kind of education I'd like to see them get, you know, to top off to be a better CPA for my size of firm might be focused on tax it might be focused on you know something else. So it's an opportunity for a lot of CPA, a lot of employees of, you know, of accounting firms who didn't top off with the, the 30 hours and could not come a CPA. It's an opportunity for them to get to a CPA at a relatively low cost and pretty efficiently because the firm will support not only the money help with the money, but also support by paying their salary and also giving them an opportunity to take this uh, online or whatever type of coursework it is. So it's, it's a pretty thought out, that's gonna be rolled out pretty quickly. I think when you see it, you'll see that a lot of work is, has gone behind that uh, particular study. So the fact that
1: the, there's a need for that program seems to indicate that the 30 hours is a barrier, like a significant barrier to obtaining the CPA.
0: Well, I would say the opposite. I, said, I think it clearly indicates that there's a need to provide a low cost option For people who want to top off and become CPAs, we're not suggesting that we lower the bar. It's actually, we want this to be very rigid, highly valued education that they achieve and become CPAs.
1: Well, I just want to like dig into that lowering the bar phrase because that's sort of like the corollary to the uh, underwater basket weaving uh, phrase, right? We use the, we, we joke about underwater basket weaving when we talk about the credits not being valuable. And then people defending the education say we don't want to lower the bar but for a bar to exist it should improve the quality and, and again as as john said who's watching on linkedin we need to discuss systematic evidence and not anecdotes and i know there are great programs out there that do train people to to do, be better cpas with the fifth year but there is not any evidence other than anecdotally that I've heard that says that it makes them
0: better overall. It simply reduces the supply. And so to me- I don't think it's anecdotal evidence that people pass the CPA exam at a higher percentage with 150. I don't think it's anecdotal that a lot of the big firms have told us that the quality of candidates they're getting out of like MAC programs are excellent. And that's almost where all they were. A lot of firms only hire from select schools that, you know, like MAC programs. So I think, you know, I can tell you that you know, if I was on your side of this argument, I could probably come up with some ideas of, you know, there are always there are always deviations from, from this. But, um, you know, the decision, uh, again, you, you're, you're trying to imply that the 30 hours is the reason there's a drop-off of candidates, and there actually is no evidence that indicates that. But it certainly, as, as you all mentioned, it could be that new people coming on, and that's why I talk about we're also looking at middle ground long-term is okay. What can we do? Uh, I saw recently a, a state board just passed a scholarship program. I mean, state boards like uh, are looking at different ways, but no one is saying that the the remedy is. And and again, I don't know if it's a negative comment lowering a bar. I mean, if if, if you want me to say lowering the education requirement, to me that's the same thing. It's not meant to be. It's not meant to be mean spirited or 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 to challenge people. It, it's it's just you know. uh you see that in the army, you see in a lot of places where people talk about lowering the bar of entry, it means because you've lowered one of the requirements to get to a goal. So it, it's you know,
1: mm-hmm. not, not supposed to but, be that way. Hold on, hold on, this is amazing. So we have John Berrios watching right now, and he he was the one who commented on the systematic evidence. And this is the study that I keep talking about. He did a study, occupational licensing and accountant quality evidence, evidence from the 150 hour rule. And in the abstract, to his study. He says, overall, these findings are consistent with the theoretical argument that increases in licensing requirements, restrict the supply of entrants and do little to improve quality in the labor market. Labor market proxies for quality find no difference between the 150-hour rule CPAs and the rest. Moreover, rule CPAs exit public accounting at similar rates and have comparable writing quality to their non-rule counterparts, right? So this is an actual, you know, study, scientific study that was done on this. And I, well, I can seen-
0: show you scientific studies that say a 180 from this study. So studies are, you know, obviously if you're going to argue an issue, you're going to pull up that study. If I wanted to pull up a study, to argue my side of the issue. I saw recently, uh, in fact, it was our chair Rick Reising has just written an article that'll be going out in some forums. But you know, what I am glad about, I am glad that that both sides are looking at this, you know, through a microscope. That we're really looking for solutions. You know the. My goal, and and I'm not a CPA. So, in some ways, I, you know, ironically, somebody said, Well, NASA's just worried about the money. If I was worried about the money, I'd lower down to eighth grade education because we make most of our money in facilitating the the CPA examination. So, keeping it at 150, using that argument, means it's a negative financial consequence for NASBA. But the reality is is that I look back at the decades of of leaders in AICPA and NASBA and state societies and state boards. That works so hard to get all states and territories to be substantially equivalent and to get to mobility. And coming up with a reasonable alternative, you know, that doesn't disrupt mobility, I think we're all willing to look at it. So, so, you know, you know, I I know that, you know, we're looking at is there another an alternative pathway? You've probably heard of the New Jersey model, you know. The reason it, we struggle a little with the New Jersey model is it's not one that's scalable and it's probably not sustainable because Pricewaterhouse is paying the full freight of that small number of candidates going through St. Peter's, but we kind of like the concept. So we're, we've are we got several solutions right now that we're working on, but we're not giving up on that. We're trying to come up with a solution that resolves as many of these issues as possible, but without disrupting substantial equivalency and mobility. Right. That, is, that is our goal. It's well, not to put a stake in the ground and say, we can't change.
2: So, so Ken, stepping back from CPAs, right, and thinking about this as just accounting talent, so bookkeepers, EAs, tax preparers, virtual CFOs, right, the whole stack, f and A guys, right, what is NASBA and AICPA doing to increase just the entire profession, participation, right? More bodies, more labor. Not, and Because obviously it's easy to focus just on the CPAs and this 150-hour rule, but are you guys working together for these other parts of the profession on the whole?
0: Well, we're not, and I can only speak for NASBA. I mean, at, you know, our job is to NASBA is to enhance the effectiveness of state boards of accountancy to provide the tools for determining licensure and re- readiness to accept the CPA examination. Uh, we know there are a lot of quality accountants out there that do tax, you know, enrolled agents and others, but we have absolutely no nexus at all to them, and we're not doing anything to encourage or discourage them. Our our total focus is on getting more CPAs in because we do know small firms are struggling to hire people. We have members of my board of accountancy are struggling to hire CPAs for their firm. They're spinning off work to other firms, so they absolutely know the problem. And and so we know it's a problem and it's not just for Minnesotans, it's just for the entire country. And, and we are, but, but what I want to clear is that we aren't resting on our laurels. We are working on solutions and we put a lot of brain power money and others behind it, capacity behind it. And we're coming out with some, some programs very, very quickly that to address it. But what programs?
1: Like, what's going to yeah, really make a difference? It. We're looking I mean,
0: at ELE for, for th- that group. We're looking at uh, uh, starting to consider a pipeline for, or excuse me, a 30-hour, something like the New Jersey again, but, but you know, that one is that is scalable yeah. and also affordable. We're also looking at possibly an amnesty program where people who dropped out during covid that lost parts of the exam, an opportunity for them to come back and maybe get those parts back if they re-enroll and and set for the exam. We're just trying to think out the box and come out of all the solutions we can without disrupting again uh, the mobility that took so many volunteers decades to achieve.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just I have yet to hear of a, a program like like here's my problem with AICPA's number one program, right? This New Jersey thing.
0: That by so- the way, that is not AICPA's program. They they that that is one where, if you want to know the truth behind that program, the New Jersey board was having a discussion about you know the 12150 likes motherboards, fad just you know, usually a person. And, and 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 we had a conversation with one of the advocates of that discussion, and he was sort of the genesis of coming up and developing uh the 150 or excuse me, the 120 program with the 30 additional hours through St. Peter's University there. And so it was a ground roots effort from the New Jersey board okay. to get that actually implemented. So it's not an AICPA plan or an ASMA plan. Okay. Well, they've, they've added it to their
1: plan. They've, they've made it seem like it's well, part of their plan. As AICPA I
0: described plan. it, we've yeah. added it as, a, as something for us to look at the success of that model right. and how can we make it scalable and affordable.
1: Right. So, so here's the problem I see with it as like why it won't work as somebody who has, you know, worked in public accounting, is that like the biggest, one of the other barriers to attracting people into the profession is the hours. So what you're saying is, instead of people going and sitting in a classroom for a year, we're going to put them to work in firms, and they're going to have to work and they're going to have to earn the education at the same time. So like, they're just they're going to be really busy, they're going to be working long hours at the firm, and they're going to be spending a lot of time trying to pass these courses. So like, I I don't see how that addresses the work-life balance issue in the accounting profession. It just exacerbates it
0: even further. But Blake, you talked earlier about all these 120 CPAs out there and how a great job they do, and they do. And many of them worked very hard when they were in college, you know, when they were achieving that. I will tell you the New Jersey plan and the ELE plan has the firm participating. PwC participates in encouraging and giving those people the time and leniency to do the programs they need to do. And that's what we're doing under ELE. So yeah, I agree with you, but it won't work if, if these people are so overworked they don't have time. You know, prior to computerized tests, when it was paper and pencil, almost all given twice a year in November, May and November, almost every firm gave their employees, you know, study time off. They worked together as a group to pass the exam. And somehow during computer, computerized examination, that just sort of went away and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Now that we're trying to go back to say, firms, you've got to you've got to invest in this too in your employees and give them the space, the opportunity, the time to study and be prepared and to sit for the CPA exam in a timely way. So you're absolutely right; it's an issue, uh, but we've got to resolve it.
1: Yeah, I just, in general, I feel like the profession has made this. We've tied the CPA to a traditional education path to college to to traditional education. And that has gotten more and more expensive over the last decades. It is one of the biggest expenses that you will ever make
0: as. But that's, but that's not unique, unique to CPAs. I mean. Right. No, I, daughter, I agree. I have a daughter's a CPA. I have a daughter's the teacher. The teacher right. to be tenured in California has to have a master's degree. And so we have a teacher tied, crisis. We have a teacher tied, shortage crisis. It's tied to uh, traditional education. Right. But name a profession that isn't. Right. And I'm saying they're all. And we should make... let all professions be professionals without an education.
1: Well, I'd say that we change the education so that it's more flexible and not tied to these universities that are bloated, that are expensive, you know, that are not providing the value
0: anymore. I'm probably I mean... not going to take this opportunity to be critical of our education system in the United States, but I'm not going to disagree with you either. Hey, other professionals have done things
2: to deal with their demand. I mean, uh... Decade ago, nurses were going to school for free. The hospitals were footing the bill to go back and become an RN. Right. So, the, the education, removing the barrier to getting the, the education, either the cost, the time to do it, et cetera, definitely impacts the supply. There's, there's I, no I totally doubt agree. on this. And like, we're totally just, agree. we're not just seeing levers pulled. There's no levers
0: being pulled. Like, this well, is going to be 40, I, we're years old, 40 years old next week. We're having, we're having respectful conversation with education. You know, some colleges aren't very happy with the ELE, but we're proposing that they pay $150 an hour. But, you know, I just, we, I just attended an economic, an, an international economic and, uh, conference, and they did a study about the cost of everything over a period of time. And the most dramatic increase during this of all the things, of food, of fuel, of, of cars, of electronics, of houses, uh, the most significant increase was education, which during this period of time, Jumped like two hundred and fifty percent. So we do know there's a correlated cost of education. Plus, students are getting smarter about not wanting to go deeply into debt. You know, our student debt. So we hear you. We don't disagree with that. And that's one of the issues that we have to uh, also have conversations about. So I'm not disagreeing with you on that. But I don't think getting rid of education is the answer.
1: I say I would I would change it to modify the education right we still want to have education we want to have experience we want to have a rigorous exam those 3 points but i don't think the universities the traditional accredited universities are doing a good job i mean there's there's no reason that we can't teach people to know what they need to know to pass the cpa exam in 3 years like they do in other countries why does it take 5 years here it just seems so inefficient i mean we've we, got you, some you
0: have you have to be pretty careful though i mean you know we we have we have IQuaP where we do the determination of mutual recognition agreements of countries like in the UK and and Ireland. And uh, and, and what I will tell you, they have competency based education, where the United States has an hourly based. We're the only country on the planet that has an hourly based education system. So when you say three years, if you look at the educational experience in three years in the UK. Um, you you know, it looks a lot different in the United States, but the amount of total education is really not that much difference. Uh, but it certainly has a cost component. Yes. It is something that probably the future, I expect the United States is going to look more like a competency based model than an hourly model. But right now we are pretty much with the hourly model and uh we're trying to adapt to that. Ken, I know I'm, where I disagree you- with you though.
1: I know we're over on time. Um, I want to know, do you have a few more minutes? We had two questions come in from our listeners. I'll give you all the time you Uh, want. How about that? Fantastic. So Mason said, this is more of a, this is a question. Why is there an assumption that you need a master's degree to be a CPA? I got my 150 in four years with no additional cost. Is my alma mater the only school that does this? What am I missing?
0: Well, to be clear, we don't believe that you have to have a master's degree. And let me tell you why. Uh, a lot of people that come into to becoming CPAs are formerly lawyers or formerly teachers. And so they've had a four-year degree in something else. So the additional time for them, maybe that's when they take on the back end, the the accounting courses. So that was me. 150 yeah, hours. Yeah. yeah. So they come with 150 hours. And and so they're as educated as a master's degree, but they weren't trying to see. For a Mac program, you know, from the very beginning, you want to have a master's degree, but we're not certain at all that someone needs to have a master's degree to be a CPA. A lot of the best CPAs that I know had an undergraduate degree in something else and and topped off with the accounting courses to get to 150.
1: Oh, and I love this idea of switching from an hourly-based system to a competency-based system. I mean, isn't that what the exam is? The exam tests for competency? And yes. The education, yes. yeah, and the way our education is set up, it just tests for can you sit in a seat in a classroom and pass some tests, you know?
0: Well, but, you know this already, Blake, The the education system in the United States, even though it's hourly, it has already moved a lot towards competency-based. When you look at things like Western Governors Association, when you look at yeah. most candidates, they go to school and they don't take, or they get they get coursework in co- for college and high school. They They don't take English 1 and 2, but but test advanced English and they get nine hours of credit. So it's comp C based. You got credit for a course because you had the comp C to pass a test or to achieve the higher level course. So they end up with 150 hours, but they didn't spend 150 hours in a seat in a college, you right. know, they achieved it through a different way. So, so you have to be careful when you say that that, that the United States model doesn't have a lot of comp C built into it, but it's not the way it's measured. And we still measure in hour's, and, and so that's why, why our law is written. Right. Like is.
1: But 20,000, uh, 20,000 students graduate from Mac programs every year. And those are typically people who went to a four-year bachelor's degree and then did a fifth year, math. like that's, and they're the ones who are spending the most money.
0: Like that's, well, it depends. It depends on no. the school. Some, they, they, they obviously take their general courses, but then they get into accounting and, and right. move into the Mac program where I'm on the board at the Vanderbilt, uh, almost all of our students who come there for the Mac program do not have an accounting degree and they're undergraduate, like, like you described. So I'm certainly familiar
1: with that model. So Cody said, if a person with a two year associates degree can pass the CPA exam, why would it matter that they didn't take 150 credit hours to get just as smart as somebody who took five years?
0: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, we hear that argument a lot, obviously it's like, uh, if looks like when a lot of states now let you sit for the exam at 120 instead of 150 as it originally came out. And some people say well, if we can pass the exam at 120, then why can't you go ahead and be licensed? Yeah. And, and I said that's that's where uh, that's where legislatures and you know with a lot of input from the profession and regulators a long time ago, four decades ago, said we need to continue to raise the bar. And so uh, So having the more well-rounded, like what you had, Blake, the philosophy, whatever it is, we believe makes you a better better CPA in in this world where many CPAs never touch like an audit. Many never touch tax. They do so many different things as CPAs anymore in the profession. So that well-rounded education uh, wouldn't help uh, to have additional technical accounting courses. The other work is what's important, but it has to be high value. I agree with that.
1: Yeah. And right now it can be anything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's so maybe the argument
2: here is should the 150, the mistake was 40 years ago. It never said you must get a Mac. And maybe that's the real problem. Because if I go like lawyers, you can't just go take other classes. You have to go to law school. If I want to be a doctor, I have to go to residencies. Like this is just Medical so school. wishy-washy. Maybe that's a well, big flaw here. Just so, so you problem. know, and
0: you probably already know this, but when this started out, that's what the desire was is to have a master's degree. The problem was, unlike law schools and medical schools, there weren't any accounting masters of accounting program or enough out there to handle the volume of CPAs that were needed. And there was a lot of resistance in state legislators from the four- year colleges. You know they they didn't have a master's program, and they didn't want to lose. so so, like any legislation, you, the people that are being hurt by it are there to testify against it. And so essentially, uh, the argument was, okay, let's move away from the masters and go to 150, but it also served as well for the people who had, like you, Blake, had a different undergraduate degree who was able to then become a CPA with the top all versus the opposite way.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, th- and this is something that we probably don't even have time to go into, but it's the impact on career changers of the 150. I think that the, uh, the talent shortage is so dramatic in accounting that if we wanna actually solve this thing, we need to get people coming in, more people from outside the profession who maybe they didn't make the wisest decision when they were in their undergraduate like me and they majored in music, but they're smart and they could be great accountants. For me, it was extremely difficult to become a CPA because I was working and I had to take all of these 30 credit hours. And I really did have to do the 30 because I didn't have a business undergraduate degree. I didn't have any of those accounting classes. So I had to work, I had to take these classes at night and I had to study for the exam. And God help me if I'd actually been working at an accounting firm, instead I was freelancing so I could have that flexibility. Uh, But like, I, I don't know how anyone changes careers into accounting, it's very, very difficult. And we could make it so much easier if we dropped that requirement, if we allowed people to you know take the exam and have the bachelor's degree and get some work experience, it would be it would be much
0: easier. I mean just look first, at the first of all you know, first of all, Blake, I'm glad you became a CPA and, and, and told your story to do that. We see a lot of CPAs though like you who did change a career and come into it. But I will tell you that you know social media is so powerful. I mean people that want to be CPAs are not they can go out there and hear about salaries and workload and things like that. And, and we have work to do to get the salaries up, the work-life balance things, you know, worked out, allowing people who are for the CPA exam, not to kill themselves working so that they can't get through the exam. We need the support of firms to do that. So yeah. we hear you all, all of that. You know, we probably got to where we are because we could, because there was such a surplus of, of candidates up until just a few years ago. Uh, we weren't focused on some of the stuff that we have to focus on now because of the challenges of the pipeline. So it's kind of new. We're working on it. And, uh, and will we make some bad answers? We could. But we're, we're at least we're – I don't want anybody to think that NASVA or AICPA are working together UA, though anybody's resting on their laurels or does not agree we have a serious problem because we know we have a serious problem that we have to resolve. And and the, the certification that
1: I see succeeding – is the certified management accountant certification right they are growing uh leaps and bounds surpassed a hundred thousand, i think and meanwhile you see the number of cpas declining and what's the difference between the cma and the cpa it's that cmas only need a bachelor's degree they pass the exam and they get i think it's three years of work experience so it's a very simple streamlined requirement without specific courses, without this 150-hour rule, and people are being drawn into that, right? Why can't we be like that? I mean, would, would, would anyone say that CMA has a lower bar than the CPA? Oh, I would, absolutely. Do you, think, do you think CMAs are less qualified than CPAs? To do audit work and the things that CPAs do, absolutely. But you said only, you know, most CPAs aren't doing audit these days, right? Only well, 15% yeah, so, of CPAs. So let's talk about it. So
0: the, the interesting thing about the CPA profession, is that when you become a CPA, you can, as they say, hang the shingle. It's like if you get past the law. You you can practice accounting, public accounting, which means you're the only people in the United States who can sign a test, and audits. So whether or not you do it, our job as regulators is to make sure that if you do it, you're qualified to do it at entry level, you maintain the comp C to do it, and that you're peer-reviewed, that other people agree that you can do it. So that's what I'm saying. No, absolutely. there's no comparison between the capability and, the, and the, even the allowance of what a CPA can do or, or a management accountant can do. And, and by the way, we're not, I'm not talking negatively about them. They do an important role and, and good friends over on that side, you know, and the, and the leadership of, of those organizations. So I'm not being critical of them. I'm saying yeah. the real difference.
1: Well, I, I'm a non-attest CPA, right? I was licensed in California. And I didn't get the attest hours, so I can't sign an audit paper.
0: Well, as you audit know, California opinion. is the only state that has that. So I, I do know there are some yeah. unique uh, market. And by the way, I, we don't disagree with that. That two tier, we've gotten away from the two tier, and maybe it makes sense. But but yeah, that's the only state where that exists. At the end of the day, the market
2: doesn't know nor care. But he has a CPA. Um, I forgot his name. We just he was at the CPA Educator Conference. He's he, he's leaving, but he's. Uh, President oh, the, of the State Society in uh, uh, Washington.
1: Uh, the CFO at the State Society in Washington. Washington. He, he's yeah. like,
2: I had a horrible GPA. I did 12 years of school. I, had it, I failed out of one university, moved to the other university, but nobody cares because he has those three letters. Like no, that's at the end of the day, all that really matters. And if that's what matters and the test is the proof, because you're telling me, like if I've heard this conversation correctly, Ken, people, the work experience they get is very variable the education experience obviously we know is variable because you do anything you want with those 30 hours if the only thing that's concrete and black and white is the test then that's, that's the, the test
0: that's the thing that really matters
2: like, like if, no, if, no, if, if we, you're lebron we, we james don't agree, of we don't agree
0: with that premise we do not agree that the exam is the exam is an entry level to determine entry level skills to get into the profession that combined with your experience which you know again uh it, it we lower the bar for for the experience the requirement of experience and increase the education back when they did 150. But no the you know there's you know the the CFO you're talking about, uh I can come up with stories on both sides of this argument, but I can tell you in the in the CPAs that I'm around on the NASA board. Of course it's a very competitive process to get on the board. There are some of the senior leaders of the profession, both on our board and AI CPA. And you, Blake, and, and to, you know, to like, uh, uh, other people that I've seen you interview. I mean, there, there are some really significant contributors to the accounting profession in different ways, like what you do, you all do with this blog. I mean, it, it is a, it, it is a very important, you know, service that you provide to do this. And so I do think that CPAs bring something to the table. Again, I'm not one I'm proud to have a daughter that is my best friend's yes. a CPA, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I as a consumer, back when I was a cop in my cop days, I paid a premium to have a CPA do the work that I had done because I knew that I was dealing with the premium account. And that's um I think that's what most consumers want, believe, and expect out of CPAs. Have you all
1: have you all polled CPAs to see what they think about this? Because like David and I mentioned earlier, when we post about this on social media. You know, the young CPAs are on social, 30 to 50-year-olds. I would say one in 100 people is in favor of this. It is really unpopular.
0: So have you Here's, all- what, here's what I tell you. To answer your question is no. We, we have, but what we have is that we have all 55 U.S. jurisdictions, almost all the board members are CPAs and some public members, and we have the executive directors and executive staffs across the country. We meet with the executive directors on a monthly basis and have a call where they discuss. We meet regularly through our regional representatives with all state boards. So we talk to people who are obviously somewhat biased because they're in the regulatory side of this. But we also meet regularly with the AICPA, which is the other side, the professional side. And so we do get an awful lot of input. I will tell you, I think I said it on the front end. There have always been those that have opposed the 150 from its genesis to now. And and we've always listened to them, and and we have thoughtful dialogue with uh, societies, with state boards, with individuals. Uh, but the consensus in my world, the consensus in my world, is support for substantial equivalency, mobility, thus the 150. Or or and, and if we're going to come up with an alternative, it has to be universally adopted.
1: Yeah. And how many of these folks who are in your circle had to get the 150?
0: Well, a growing number, obviously, because as the baby boomers are retiring, we're seeing more and more people that had the 150. I, I don't know that I can give you a ratio, uh, but I can also tell you that many of the people that I know that were uh, CPAs prior uh, to the 150, many of them had master's degrees and, and and had you know already MBAs and law degrees and other degrees in addition to accounting. So uh, you know, there's also a large number of people that just got you know, the master's degree, but also the very intense uh, experience requirement pre-150.
1: Yeah. Well, David, I think I'll give you the last word on this and then we'll wrap
0: it up. Well,
2: I, I, I want to make sure I heard this correctly because it's kind of making my head explode. I like making people's
0: head explode, so let's do this.
2: <laughs> so did you say that all the CPA exam does is prove you've, you're, you're an entry-level CPA? Exactly. So So this is crazy. Like, that is insane to me. So every, the assumption is, as, the as a consumer, yeah, as a consumer, if somebody has that, I assume that you know. they're just as good as anybody else that has that.
1: Well, you know me, David. And that's the
2: branding. That's you know the branding.
1: Me, you know me, David. And, and so I passed the CPA exam. And with one year of experience, I was a CPA. Right?
2: But the branding is, it's all equal. That's why maybe you need CPA plus or whatever it might be, because if I go into a doctor's office and they have that certificate on the wall, they they have those two letters, DR, you kind of a trust and you're in good hands, but you're telling me that just because they got the CPA, yeah.
0: But if you go to the like, doctor's that's the bare office, minimum? you should understand. I, I cannot believe that's the view. and years of experience before they can practice medicine right so Um, we we replaced
1: like doctors have to do residencies they 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 do like what five ten years of experience before they can practice and in the cpa world we have replaced the experience requirement with an education requirement essentially like one year of experience is hardly anything and i just think that we need to go back to our roots i mean cpa used to be purely experience based right? Exam experience. I mean, we can go back a hundred years and it was, you learned on the job. And I just, I feel like we, my, my feeling is that we have replaced that, that very valuable experience with education. And I'm not a big fan of classroom education, Ken. Like I, I, I went to a top university. I went to Northwestern University and I saw, I saw how you could game the system, right? Like my degree at Northwestern, has value because of the brand, not.
0: Blake, Blake, you're a smart guy. You're, you're going to game the system if you went to Harvard. I mean, so, so, yeah. I mean, you're smart, and, and, and we're proud to have you as a CPA. But you know, I'm not disagreeing with you about the value of good experience. I I don't disagree with you on that. You know, you know, I I would not be surprised if we have serious discussions about an alternative pathway that that can. Uh, without that doesn't violate substantial equivalency mobility. Right now, we're in a, you know, like I said, short-term, what, we, what do we need to do right now? I don't think that having, you know, legislation that isn't well thought out, believing, you know, based on some people, that education is the whole problem, you know, we could actually do more harm than good if we don't slow walk this and do it right. Uh, so, so you know, I don't think you all said anything in, our, in your past uh, that I've heard you say in the past, you all make good sense. I mean, that there are some valid arguments out there that we need to listen to and consider and, and consider change. I don't want anyone to believe that anyone I know at AICP or NASBA has a stake in the ground that says we're never going to change that the education in the future is going to look just like it does now. Because I don't think that's the case. I think that right now we're really trying to protect the for, for consumers and and the profession some fast equivalency mobility, and what can we do to to slow walk this and fix it, but also fast walk it enough that we can get people in the pipeline on the short term as quickly as possible.
1: I think that's a great way to end this episode. Thank you so much, Ken. We've been talking with Ken Bishop, President and CEO of the National Association of State Boards of Accountancy. Have a great weekend. Thank you. I enjoyed it. All right. Bye, everyone.